sure you've been in one of those office settings where they have those motivational posters. You know the kind, right? There's some supposedly inspiring picture with a word or a phrase under it, like determination. Some people want it to happen. Some people wish it would happen. Some people make it happen. I don't know about you, but I've always found those posters to be a little funny. They kind of make me laugh quite a bit more than they make me feel inspired. But perhaps you've heard of Despair Incorporated and their demotivator line of posters. One of them says, motivation. If a pretty poster and a cute saying are all that it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job, the kind that robots will be doing really soon. And then one of my favorites has this picture of a sinking ship and it says mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. Last week, Pastor Mark shared about an event in the life of King David, King David of Israel from 3,000 years ago. And it is one of those events that always reminds me of that poster. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. King David's actions in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 are a chain reaction of sinful, bad decisions, of mistakes. And everything that he does is an important warning to us. If we will take heed to it, if we will consider what is being said by those things that he does and recognize that we shouldn't do what he is doing. But the story of King David often causes us to have a bit of a cognitive dissonance. When you look at the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, his sin with Bathsheba and his, his plan to cover it up, reading the mistaken sinful actions of David in that passage, you can't help but find yourself kind of shaking your head and wondering, how on earth is this guy called a man after God's own heart? That's what the scriptures call him, a man after God's own heart. And as Pastor Mark mentioned last time, David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, he broke every one of God's 10 commandments. He certainly didn't honor God in the things that he did. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery. In doing so, he took what was not his, he stole. His adultery was a form of idolatry. And then he lies about his adultery. And then he commits murder to cover up his adultery. So he certainly doesn't honor his father and his mother when he is coveting and stealing and committing adultery and lying about it and committing murder. But prior to that, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, before David is anointed as king, God calls David a man after his own heart. And you look at this and you kind of wonder, like, really? This scoundrel? This scoundrel's a man after God's own heart? He's not the kind of role model that I would want for my kids. He's not the kind of guy that I'd want to leave my kids around. Now, admittedly, 1 Samuel chapter 13, when God says that David is a man after my own heart, is a long time before 2 Samuel chapter 11. And so when you look at the events of what take place in David's life in his sin with Bathsheba and his plan to cover it up, you know, you, you look at it and you just wonder, man, how the mighty have fallen. And sadly, that is the testimony of far too many people. Right now, there is a part of me that is grieving over some recent news about an individual that I looked up to and a lot of people looked up to as 
you would have said, a man after God's own heart, an individual that many people, including myself, considered to be a pattern to follow as a pastor, as a preacher. And news has been coming out over the last several weeks about um, you know, his failures and his falling having to do with some of the very same things, not murder, thankfully, but some of the very same things that David is uh, guilty of there in that passage in 2 Samuel chapter 12, 11 and 12. And once again, uh, the, the words of another preacher in our nation come to mind that the best of men are men at best. And sometimes we really see just how fallen we really are in, in some of the people that we look up to. But when you think about David, he had some great high heights. And at those great times in his life, slaying Goliath or writing the Psalms or, you know, being this great, great leader militarily and going and bringing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord back to its rightful place and working to try and build God a temple. All these things, you look at that and you go, this is someone who is a pattern to follow, but he had a lot of low lows as well. And, and sometimes when you look at the events, like what Pastor Mark talked about last week, you kind of think like maybe they need to cancel King David. And that's a, it's an unfortunate reality. You know, as an aside, one of the, the proofs, I think, that shows that the scriptures are an inspired, you know, work of God, that God inspired these things, is that the text of the scriptures don't whitewash the heroes of scripture. You know, you see guys like Abraham or King David for who they really are, that they were not perfect and they did fall short of God's glory frequently. And so if the Bible was merely just a history book, then 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, they probably wouldn't even be in there, but they are in there and they're there to reveal some important things. So why are they there? Because they're meant to reveal important things about God, his nature and his will. The reality of who we are and who our heroes are, when we see us and our heroes in light of who we really are, it reveals the greatness of God to a greater extent. So back to that question though, how on earth is this guy David called in the scriptures a man after God's own heart after he did some, some really horrible things? And that's not the only thing, you know, his sin with Bathsheba and his plan to cover it up in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, that's not the only time that he fell short and stumbled and revealed his humanness and his fallenness. So how is it possible that he is a man after God's own heart? And that really is a good question and one to think about. And one that I think at least has an answer in some part found in something that David wrote following the events of 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan, he calls David out for his hidden iniquity with some of the most piercing words of scripture. In response to Nathan's parable, Nathan tells David this parable about there's a guy in your kingdom who stole this lamb from his neighbor and this guy who stole it, he had tons of stuff and he steals this one thing from his neighbor and that's the only thing his neighbor had. And in response to that, David is filled with anger. He says in the text, as the Lord lives, this man who's done this, he shall surely die. And he is really angry by this. And in response to that, Nathan looks at David and he says, you are the man. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed Uriah. And this is probably about a year after all of those events took place. David has basically been scot-free for a year, lying about this the entire time, looking like the good guy after Uriah is killed in battle. And David, you know, he so kindly brings Uriah's wife into his household to take care of her as she's widowed and now she's going to have a child. And he lies about it for a year. And now 
Nathan brings this to the forefront. God reveals it. It teaches us a very important lesson that we need to recognize and understand that all those things that are hidden will come to light. Your sin will find you out. And we see that with David and Nathan there in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, at that moment when the king's sin was exposed, David had a choice. And it isn't clear in the text of 2 Samuel chapter 12, but I, I don't think that it is too far off to assume that Nathan's conversation with the king was not out in the open. It was not in public. It's not like Nathan comes and brings this story to the king while the king is gathered with all of the people of the king's court. It was probably a private conversation that Nathan has with him because it, it just wouldn't have been out in the open. That's not the way that the ancient Near East works. So Nathan comes and converses with the king privately. And it has already been established in the story that David, he has no problem killing somebody to cover things up. He has no problem killing someone who's close to him because Uriah the Hittite had been one of David's mighty men. And David, he gave the order to kill one of his mighty men to cover up his own sin. So it's not too far off from David to be willing to kill to cover things up. But that's not what he did. Instead, we have his response recorded for us in a psalm that he wrote after these things took place in Psalm 51. And it's considered by many to be one of the most beautiful of all of the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And Psalm 51 is, is one of the ones that really ministers to a lot of people. And there we read this. And it's, it's important to look at the heading of Psalm 51. It says, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this sets the groundwork for what these words the context of these words. So look at Psalm 51, verse 1. There we read, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know your wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your praises. So back to that question. Why is a scoundrel like David called a man after God's own heart? The answer to that question is really found there in those words in Psalm 51. Because when David was exposed, he confessed and he repented. And he found comfort and joy in the saving grace of a merciful God. He cried out to God and he said there, God, in your loving kindness and by your mercy, save and deliver me from iniquity, transgression and sin. Wash me and cleanse me and purge me. Blot out my transgressions. 
I am an evil, wicked sinner and I need your redeeming, saving grace. That was David's response in all of the things that went on in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, his sin. And then when his sin finds him out, instead of trying to continue the cover-up, he comes clean and he says, I have sinned. I am the man. And we have this beautiful picture of him praising God for God's deliverance and the joy of God's salvation. And one of the things that we find when we look at the, the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 and his sin with Bathsheba and his plan to cover it up, and then in his, his confession and his repentance and his lament here in Psalm 51, one of the things we see is that the story of scripture and the story of history is a story of a sinful humanity and a merciful, redeeming God. The overarching story of scripture is one of salvation. Theologians call this the meta-narrative of the Bible, this big overarching story, the meta-narrative of the Bible. And it occurs in four acts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so the Bible at its core is a redemptive story. And when you think about it, that really is the best kind of story. Redemptive stories, they are some of our favorite. The dad who rescues his daughter, the prince who saves the princess, the superhero that saves the world, the Avengers that save not just the world, but the universe. And I wanna to suggest to you that there is a reason that we humans love these kind of redemptive savior stories. We love redemptive savior stories because there is something in us that reverberates with those stories. We recognize that we are lost and that we are in need of a savior. We're in need of a, a rescuing redeemer to come in at just the right time. We are constantly reminded of our lostness and the brokenness of our society. Every single day we are confronted by our own failures and we are confronted by the brokenness of the world that we live in. And we deeply desire a redeemer and we deeply desire the redemption that that redeemer could give. And though one of the core tenets of postmodernism, which is the ruling philosophy of our day, one of the core tenets of postmodernism is the denial and rejection of all meta narratives, we still long for this redemptive story to be true. A lost and broken people in need of redemption and restoration. What is not to love about that story? The question though is, is that story true? That is the story that we're presented with in the scriptures, but we, we, though we want that story, we, we still question, is that story true? I want it to be true. I wish it were true. I would love for it to be true, but is it true? Well, that is one of the things that I have been addressing in the previous series that we had here at the church called First Things First. We did the five week series through the month of August. And, and going back to establishing the basis for why we believe that these things are true. Is there validity to the faith of Christ? And so that's what we were going through in that series, First Things First. And I believe that there is evidence. There is evidence that supports the claim that the salvation story of the Bible with Jesus at the center, it, it is true. It is an actual reality for us. And that's what I spent those five weeks driving home in August. And you can check out those videos. Just go to our website. You can either get the audio podcast or the videos. Go to lifeinconnection.com. You can listen to the first things first messages. But I want to come back to this, this point. The overarching story of scripture is one of salvation. And that'll be something of a thesis as we start to get into a new series that we're going to be calling the Disciplines of a Disciple. I want to talk about, okay, we, we believe 
that Jesus is this Redeemer who comes and saves us. We believe that He died on a cross and rose from the dead. We believe those things. We talked about that in the First Things First series, but how does that affect our lives and, and how do we you know, move forward once we have trusted in that? So we have this kind of thesis as we step into this new series that I'm calling Disciplines of a Disciple. It'll become clear as we get into this in the coming weeks um, what, what we're gonna be talking about with the Disciplines of the Disciple. But the overarching story of scripture is one of salvation. So that's kind of the thesis for this, but that really brings forth some questions. I've got questions as they say. So when we talk about the overarching story of scripture being one of salvation, salvation of who? Salvation from what? And salvation unto what ends? So in this series, we're gonna be kind of getting into those things, but we have to start with kind of this area having to do with salvation. Because when we're talking about the disciplines of the disciple, we're talking about a person who is a follower of Christ, a disciple, and one who is an obedient follower of Christ who is growing towards maturity. That's ultimately what we want to be doing, is growing towards maturity. And all of this really goes back to something I shared at the very beginning of August on these broadcasting here at the church. And that has to do with the fact that after 17, almost 18 months of going through all the chaos of COVID for 2020 and 2021, um, it seems as though, and a lot of people who are followers of Jesus, disciples, Christians, that these events and the stress of these events has kind of brought out our carnality, our flesh, and revealed the extent to which we probably still need to grow towards maturity. So my hope is that through that First Things First series and through this Disciplines of a Disciple series that we can kind of develop a uh, progress, if you will, in growing towards maturity. And I think that this is a necessary topic. It is a topic that is important for the person that is interested in Christianity, but maybe not yet a Christian. But it is a topic that is essential for the person that has been a Christian for any length of time, maybe just a short period of time. And you want to understand a little bit more about what this thing is that the Bible calls a walk, walking with Jesus. But this is a necessary teaching and a necessary series for someone who's been a Christian for a really long time, maybe even decades, because it is entirely possible to be a Christian, as they say. That is someone that is trusted in Christ. And it's, it's possible to be a Christian and yet not be a faithful disciple, an obedient follower of Jesus. And I have a lot that I, I could and would like to say about that, but I'll just leave it at that for the moment. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit more as we go into some more messages on this topic. For Jesus, the focus in his ministry was making disciples, not just converts, not just believers. That's what he commissioned his followers to do. In fact, in what we call the Great Commission in the Bible, in Matthew chapter 28, just before Jesus ascended into heaven as he's gathered with his disciples, he says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, amen. Go, Jesus says, and make disciples. That's, that's what followers of Jesus, disciples, and churches, which are gatherings of disciples, that's what we have been doing for the last 20 centuries. And that's what we will continue to do even till the end of the age when Jesus returns. That's what I and other leaders at churches are committed to, at this church are committed to, to making disciples, turning all of you, hopefully, into faithful or more faithful followers of Jesus. But here's the thing. The call to discipleship, the call to becoming a follower of Jesus, and 
that first step to being a disciple is a call to salvation. To show you this, we always turn to the scriptures. And there's probably no better place in all of the scriptures to show that this call to be a disciple is a call to salvation than what we see in the, the uh, words of the opening of the church, the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you have what we would call the birth of the church as Jesus' disciples are beginning to take the message of Jesus to the multitudes. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that one of Jesus' disciples, the apostle Peter, he preaches to a huge gathering of people in Jerusalem. And at the end of his message, after he has given this message about Jesus being crucified, buried, and risen from the dead, he says this to the people that are gathered there all together in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, all the multitudes, the people that were listening, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, the removal, the blotting out of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who will come after you, as many as the Lord will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved. There's this message of salvation. So the call to discipleship is a call to salvation. Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received this word were baptized. And that day, 3,000 souls were added to them. So there in this passage, after Jesus' disciples are going to fulfill that commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, there in that passage, we see that the path of discipleship is a path of following Jesus and receiving his salvation. Peter says to this group of people, as they say, so what, what should we do in response to everything that you're saying? He says, you know, you should, be, you should repent and you should be saved and you should be baptized. So the call to discipleship is a call to salvation. Jesus' mission in coming to this world was a mission of salvation. Before Jesus was born, an angel appeared to Joseph who was engaged to be married to Mary, the, the mother of Jesus. And Mary had mysteriously become pregnant and Joseph, he's engaged to her, he had not been involved in her pregnancy uh, not the best situation. And he's trying to figure out like, how do I handle this? You know, I love her and I want to deal with her the right way, but this is not so much a good thing. But in the midst of that, Joseph has a visit by an angelic being who speaks to Joseph in Matthew chapter one at verse 20. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Notice this, for he will save his people. He will save his people. Now, if you're following along in Matthew 1:21, then you'll notice that there's more to that verse that I didn't read there. I had to stop just before I read those last three words of this verse because uh, there in verse 21, because it answers one of the questions about salvation that I threw out earlier. The overarching story of scripture is the story of salvation, but salvation of who and salvation from what? and salvation unto what ends. So the angel said to Joseph, she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. 
It isn't just the words of the angel to Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the same thing that the Apostle Paul would later write in one of his letters to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus in the scriptures is presented as the savior of the world. We find that in John's gospel chapter four, in 1 John chapter four, he came in the world to save sinners. He said of himself in John's gospel chapter 12, verse 47, I have come to save the world. And Luke chapter 19, one of the theme verses of Luke chapter, or the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So the answer to our question, this whole story of salvation, the overarching story of scripture is a story of salvation. Salvation of who? Sinners. Jesus has come to save sinners. He's come to save the world. Salvation from what? He's come to save sinners from their sin, from iniquity, transgression, and sin. Psalm 51, remember what we just read with David. He, he says there in Psalm 51, verses one through four, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Deliver me, salvation word right there. Deliver me from the guilt, bloodshed, guilt of bloodshed. O God, the God of my salvation. So there we see the story of scriptures is the story of salvation in another place in the Psalms. In Psalm 32, the same David who is speaking about his He's confessing and calling out for God's salvation in Psalm 51. In Psalm 32, he says this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The blessing of salvation is the blessing of God's forgiving grace and mercy through Christ. That's the wonderful story of salvation in the scriptures. God's mercy and grace through Jesus. And there is so much more that I would like to say about all of this. So many places that I would like to go, but I just don't have enough time today. There are so many questions that come to mind when we start to talk about salvation and sin and sinners and all these different things that Jesus does. I mean, you start to ask the question, what, what exactly is sin? And am I really a sinner? I mean, we see, we see David's sin in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 with Bathsheba and Uriah and all these horrible things that take place. I mean, his sin is pretty clear, but sometimes people feel like, well, I don't think I'm all that bad. Especially when you look at David, you go, I'm not as bad as David. So what is sin? Am I really a sinner? What happens to me as a result of salvation? What does it mean to be saved? Why does the Bible say that we are being saved or shall be saved? I mean, I thought I am saved. You know, these are some of the questions that I hope that we'll be able to talk about a little bit more. What, what evidence is there that you have been saved? But Unfortunately, I'm gonna to have to hold off on those questions and the answers to those questions until next time because I'm running a little bit short on time today and we have something important that I wanna encourage you to do as we come to the close of our broadcast for this Sunday. You see, salvation is a gift of God's grace and it is a product of God's love. Romans 5 verse eight says, 
but God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this gift of God's grace, according to his love, is something that we need to constantly be reminded of and keep at the forefront of our minds. We need to remember it and rejoice in it regularly. And one of the ways that we do that is through the sacrament of communion. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed by one of his disciples, by Judas, and the night that he would be arrested and ultimately charged to be put to death, the night before he would be crucified, he partook of a meal with his disciples. And at a certain point in the meal, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he says, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same manner, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup after they had eaten. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In our on-campus services today, we're going to be partaking of communion. And I want to encourage you, if you're watching this online and at home, and you're not going to be gathered together with us for our Sunday services here at the church, then I want to encourage you that at some point this week, maybe you would sit down with a Bible, with a little bit of grape juice, if you have some, a little piece of bread, and that you would consider what Jesus did for you and his body being broken for you, his blood being shed so that you could receive salvation. Jesus was delivered up to the cross. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us so that you and I could receive this salvation and we could experience the blessedness of having our sins forgiven. And we could experience the joy and the rejoicing of his salvation as we are completely saved, wholly and completely saved, spirit, soul, and body. So in communion, we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us, that we would be able to be saved. So my encouragement to you today, this week, is that maybe you'd set aside some time. You can open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at about verse 23, and read through that passage, and you can be led by the scriptures through communion. If you don't have the elements of communion, you are welcome to stop by here at the church office. The church office is open Monday through Thursday, regular business hours. We'd love to give you one of these little things that we have here. These, we're going to use these Sunday morning here at the church as we partake of communion as well. So I know that maybe you don't have these things, these elements with you right now at home, but you can come pick them up if you want to do this later on. And just allow the scriptures to lead you through communion as you remember Jesus' body that was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you. But next week, we're going to come back to this topic about salvation. What are we saved from? What are we saved unto? What is salvation all about? What does it entail? What does it bring about in us? And then why are we starting with this when we're talking about the disciplines of a disciple? And I'll just give you a little preview. You really only become a true disciple and follower of Jesus by first receiving his gift of grace and salvation that comes only through the work that he did on the cross. So that's where we're going next week. I hope you join, you'll join with us then. Father God, I thank you for the, the privilege, the opportunity that it is to be able to gather together, even at a distance, even over technology, to go through the scriptures. Your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And you have given it to us so that we might know you, what you are like and what you desire. And Lord, that we might come into a relationship with you through the, the work that you did on our behalf, Jesus. So I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of you. We would grow closer to you as we pray, as we study your word, as we fellowship with one another in all these different ways. God, do a work in your church as wherever we may be. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.